0: You're listening to episode 136 of the Marathon Running Podcast. In this episode, we're going to replay the episode about the perfect running form. This is the Marathon Running Podcast by Letty and Ryan from We Got The Runs. Join us in our running community for weekly content that is motivational, educational, and inspirational, and let the Marathon Running Podcast take you from the starting line to the finish line and beyond. Hey, runners, and welcome to a replay episode, episode 136, which is a replay of episode 52.
1: So the episode is of Brody Sharp.
0: Yes, Brody Sharp, which is a Australian physiotherapist. If you listen to this podcast, you probably know his podcast and he's pretty well known at this point. Um, we talked to him a lot back when he started his podcast and I'm happy to see how he has grown with his content. But anyway, so happy Christmas. We hope that everybody had a great holiday. And now we're in that, uh I call it the limbo week, which is the week between Christmas and New Year's because I'm not ready to start my resolutions yet, but I kind of am wrapping stuff up. I always have a few things that I do. I try to offload all apps I don't use from my phone and take off, take down all the pictures. Um I don't know if that's just me.
1: What about reading all your unread emails?
0: Yeah, I don't do that. I delete them. If it hasn't bothered me to not have read them at this point.
1: Okay, just for comparison, let's now pick up Lenny's phone. <clears throat> She's the one that holds unread emails and text messages, whereas I'm the one that doesn't. So you have ooh, you have currently two hundred and thirty five phone calls that were not or or like uh, voice messages that you haven't checked. Two hundred and one text messages. Two hundred and forty seven emails.
0: That's pretty good.
1: <laughs> and 20 Google Voice messages that you haven't checked.
0: I mean, I think, I think it's safe to say that this is a lot better than Letty from 2021.
1: It wasn't the 2000s before.
0: I know it was. So this is pretty good for me. I mean, you know, most of the stuff is like, you know how you get a text message and you glance over it and somebody says, great, cool. So you're not going to click on it to make it disappear. <laughs> so a lot of them are just like, all right, cool. Bye. Love you. Whatever.
1: What are you saying your love to you two?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. And this is where the podcast ends, because we're getting a divorce. (laughs) Just kidding. We would never divorce.
1: So I find that funny that you were talking about cleaning up your phone, because, like, yeah, mine's generally clean, and yours is generally not.
0: (laughs) So I mean, like, clean as in, like, creating more storage space, getting rid of pictures. I'm super organized with photos, so I take them, put them on my terabyte drive and and that sort of thing, you know. But let's talk about some New Year's resolutions, Ryan, or should we do a whole dedicated podcast to that maybe next week?
1: Yeah, we should do another podcast to it. I think a lot of people are going to have New Year's resolutions, and a lot of times people's New Year's resolution is to run or exercise more, so maybe figuring out ways to motivate to do so would be good. But you could always start early.
0: You can start early. Well, we'll start the research then. And then next week's podcast is going to be how to make 2023 your best running year yet.
1: Sure. Sounds good.
0: Especially since you're training for a marathon.
1: Sounds like a good um, enticer or clickbait title.
0: Hopefully, it'll display like that when we get our ratings and our, you know, statistics on how many listens we had. But anyway, let's not uh, deviate anymore from this current topic. Like we said, we've had this episode, I think it was about maybe two years ago, and it was super informative because we always strive to have the perfect posture. So without any further ado, we're not going to replay the episode about the perfect running form. All right. So I am back on here with Brody Sharp. Brody, thank you so much for joining us again.
2: It is always a pleasure, lady. Thanks for having me on.
0: Of course. For our new listeners, because not everybody has been here since day one, you've had you a couple of times on the podcast. But for those that don't know you, can you tell us your life story, who you are, (laughs) what you do, and uh, all of that?
2: Sure. My life story. So uh, I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, born and raised, still here today. And I became, well, I studied physiotherapy here and a couple of years into my physio career became a runner, then decided that I love running, then decided that I love treating runners. And so I have gone off on this little niche and now I am only treating runners and I do so through an online platform. So see runners all over the world. And while I am treating runners, I recognize that a lot of runners need to be educated on the right information to help them train smarter, to help reduce their risk of injury, if they are injured, exactly what they need to do to overcome that injury, and just recognize that throughout the internet and just the general conversations between runners and coaches and uh, health professionals, there's a lot of There's a lot of cross-wiring. There's a lot of miscommunication. There's a lot of contradictory information around what you should do. And so I'm on this mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. So I do that through uh, social media platforms. I do it mostly through my own podcast, the Run Smarter podcast. And yeah, I'm just on this mission to make sure everyone has clarity around what they need to do and what is a myth, how we can bust that myth. What does the evidence tell us? And yeah, try and make it nice and clear for runners to understand.
0: That's awesome. And yeah, you've, you're have you known for the myth vesting because uh, we've had you on a couple of times and you've corrected a lot of wrong information out there. And we do really like you because you tell us not just what to do, but why people do it. So before we get into all of this, are there any vocabulary words? Perhaps you could just give us a basic definition as to cadence. And then perhaps you can also talk to us about the phases of a runner's stride.
2: Sure. So if anyone's not familiar with cadence, it is essentially a number, which is the amount of steps that a runner would take per minute. And it's irrelevant of speed. You might have two runners side by side running at the same speed. However, one runner may be taking longer strides. They may be moving up and down quite a lot and they're almost running. It looks like they're running on the moon. They're moving up and down quite a lot and their their legs are ticking over a bit slower, but still moving at the same speed as the runner next to them. And that next runner may be ticking their legs over quicker. They may be uh, taking shorter strides and just, yeah, moving their legs quicker. So they're taking more steps per minute. And so your cadence is the amount of steps that you take per minute and can reveal some interesting information about that runner based on the cadence that they have. Whether we need to change that or not is a different story, um, which we can go into a bit in this um, podcast. But there's certain phases, one being what we call initial contact. So if we're focusing on just the right leg and you're going through that running cycle, when you go through your swing phase is when your foot is in the air. When you first make contact with the ground, that's what we call initial contact, and then as we continue through that running cycle when the foot comes off uh, comes directly underneath the body we call that mid stance and lastly the last little point or the last more relevant phase of the running cycle would be your push off or your toe off phase which is as you go through that mid stance you keep going through that cycle until the foot pushes off and just Um, comes off the ground and that's the the toe-off phase. And then you're back into your swing phase. And so we might talk about mid stance. We might talk about initial contact a fair bit in this episode, but they're the phases and that's cadence if um, those aren't familiar.
0: Perfect, perfect. So equipped with all of that, we can now go into the biggest question that all of us want to know. Is there such a thing such as the perfect running form And if yes or no, why?
2: Yeah, the ideal question. And there's a lot of misconceptions around this. Um, There may be a perfect running form for you, but there is no perfect running form for everyone. And when I think of a perfect running form, I, I think of a running form that is efficient. So Um, something that's as economical as we can be, something that would reduce your risk of injury, something that would help you operate for a a good performance. Like if you are a recreational runner who's running a half marathon or a marathon, the more economical you are, the more efficient you are, the more you're going to perform. And so we have to recognize that everyone's different. Everyone moves differently. Everyone has different um, optimal movement paths. And so, we can't just tailor one rule to everyone to say that every runner needs to run this way um, because we know that if we try and find a perfect form and get people to try and run that way, the, the way they run, the way they operate, the way they move through this preferred movement path is different. And so, it's inefficient for them. And so, we can't just find this one rule. We can't find this one um, perfect running style. But however, you as an individual could find a perfect running style, just be different to everyone else.
0: Right, right. And so that's where I guess you would come into play because then people would approach you and ask you to analyze their running. Is that how that works?
2: Um, yes. Or there's There's a couple of theories out there that someone would move in there. They would self-optimize. Like there were if a runner is, has been running for a couple of years and got through that awkward coordination phase when they're now more coordinated with their running, based on their anatomy, based on how stiff, sore, strong, weak they are, they self-optimize. And so the, sometimes we don't change a lot of their running patterns. And if someone comes to me and they are injured and they're trying to overcome an injury, I rarely change a lot of their running style because they are one. Runners are those who do self-optimize on their anatomy. And I guess one of the main theories or the main myths that are out there is a lot of running coaches and a lot of health professionals try and change someone, someone's running style because they try and make them more efficient. And one of the mo- most common ones I can think of is someone says, you should never heel strike. You should always transition to something of a midfoot at that initial contact. So, when you very first make contact with the ground, it's very common for runners to make that initial contact with their heel. And a lot of people think that that is inefficient. A lot of people think that you will adapt a more efficient, a more perfect run to increase your running performance if you remove that heel strike and replace it with either a flat foot or a midfoot. Uh, or a forefoot, so more towards the toes rather than the heel. And it kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense in theory if we were reaching out in front and contacting with the heel, that produces a little bit of a braking force, um, which makes it less efficient. It's almost like running with the handbrake on. We don't want to run with a handbrake on the whole entire time. But we know through evidence, we know through trying to change people's running style that – It doesn't really match. the. If you change someone from a heel strike to a forefoot strike, they actually become less economical because they're used to running with that heel strike the entire time. And so um, we can delve into the the nitty gritties of why it's not as efficient, Um, but there's a few myths that we probably need to bust throughout this episode.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you already got started with that, with one, the heel striking that you just mentioned, and then also the second one being the self-optimization that you don't necessarily need to go talk to somebody as soon as you start running, but rather you kind of wait it out and see if you can turn into an efficient or more economical runner yourself. So when you're analyzing somebody running on a treadmill, can you tell me what the different things are that you look at? If it's not just cadence and the leaning and all that, what is it that you see?
2: Yeah. Well, I'll take the runner's history, injury history, their training history into account before I look at them. Uh, One of the biggest things that I look at is cadence. Um, Not necessarily that I change it, but I just want to have a look at how they generally operate. And, Increasing someone's cadence could be a game changer for some, but for most, they usually fit in a really nice zone. And if we're talking about numbers, there used to be this general rule that 180 was the perfect number for your cadence. Everyone should, tr- should strive for 180 because that's, it seems to be the most ideal, the most optimal number to strive for. And they got this number because they looked at a bunch of elites, elite runners, looked at their cadence, they were all at 180. And then they decided, yes, every runner should strive for that because that's what the elites are doing. And that's where that rule came about. However, we now know that it depends on the runner, but generally as a rule of thumb between 165 to 185 is a pretty comfortable zone for most people. If you are that really tall, lanky, really long leg type of person, your optimal cadence will be lower than someone who's a bit shorter, who can tick their legs over a bit quicker. They're, they will find it more efficient than others. If you have a really big, tall, lanky person trying to get 180, trying to get 180 steps per minute, which is three steps per second, it's quite a lot. They're gonna, They might find that their heart rate elevates. They might find that they're out of breath. They might find that they're just working too hard traveling at that same speed. And so for some, it's a little bit working too much. And for others, if they're quite shorter, they might be very comfortable at 180. And so when I am looking at someone on a treadmill, if their cadence is really low, I would almost always change it. If they're at 150, 155, um, somewhere in the 150s, I would recommend to them that they increase their cadence by 5 to 10%. 5 to 10% is where the research shows that it has a significant change in their running. But what I do see when I look at runners on the treadmill is that most of them do fall into a really nice zone for them. They fall into that between 165, 185, somewhere in there. And so that's one of the first things that I assess, but whether I choose to change it or whether I choose to manipulate it or not is a different story. The other thing that I would look at is um, just their general posture, are they leaning forward? Are they, is their chest up quite high? Um, but the other thing is, is are they eliciting an overstride pattern? So when we talked about that running phase, when we're talking about that initial contact, when their foot first makes contact with the ground, it doesn't bother me whether they contact with the heel or the midfoot or the forefoot. What does apply a lot of relevance is how far in front of their body they're contacting. And so if they're contacting with the heel and they're really far in front of their body, that's producing too much of that breaking force. And we want to remove that straight away. We want to make that more efficient. And this is where it ties in with cadence really well. If someone has a really low cadence, they can get away with reaching out really far in front of their body. And they'll usually have a very low cadence if they have a overreach pattern But if you change that cadence, if you go from 150 to 160, they don't have enough time to overreach. And so if they follow that same cadence following like a metronome or like a beeping, they don't have time to reach out in front of them and that overstride tends to correct itself anyway. And so it's the balance of the same equation. If you manipulate one, you're affecting the other. And so they're generally what I would look at. Um, for every runner. And then everything else after that is just based on their history. If they've got Achilles tendinopathy, a long history of Achilles or calf issues, or if they've had a long history of knee issues, that's when I hone in on the really nitty gritty and try and change something for them to help offload structures. So, that'd just be based on the individual
0: So those would be like the red flags that you were saying earlier that you're not necessarily going to correct them on the cadence. But when you do see somebody overstriding or having that type of um, landing in front of the major point of gravity, that's when you feel like that's something that needs to be changed because of injury prevention.
2: Yeah, correct. if, If I was to sum it up. There's the two major things. If someone has a really low cadence, you'd want to change that for everyone. If someone does have a really large overstride and contacting with the heel really far in front of their body, you'd want to change that no matter what type of runner you are.
0: Okay. All right. So I have a question in regards to cadence for you. When we change our speeds, say, for example, on Sunday, you do long run, it's your easy 90 minute long run. And then on the next Sunday, you're running a 5k. Does your cadence change and is it only due to speed or are you changing your stride as well?
2: Yeah. Um, Interestingly enough, your cadence doesn't change too much. It might change slightly with uh, a speed when it comes to a recreational runner running a a marathon compared to running a 5K. There might be a very slight difference in cadence, but it will just still fall in your sweet spot. But what happens with speed under the recreational runner is – the stride length changes. So you're doing this, you're ticking the legs over just the same rate, but the steps are larger. So your stride length is larger and that's where you get that speed from. But there seems to be a very, a crossover pattern once you get to like, say 200 meters, 100 meter sprinting, say for um, the athletic, uh, people who do athletics or people who are um, into those sprints, there comes a crossover where the faster you go, say, if you go from really sprinting 200 meters to sprinting 100 meters, the stride length actually stays exactly the same, but how you get faster is increasing your cadence. And so, um, there, there's kind of like this turning point. But for the recreational runner who's running 5Ks and beyond, your cadence isn't really manipulated that much with change in speed. That usually comes with change in stride, uh, which is why it's it doesn't really matter. If someone is running, say, is really jogging like at a really, really slow pace, then their cadence will drop a little bit. But for most people, you'll find that they just, they tick the legs over the same amount at the same rate. And it might deviate from like say five steps here and there, but it's usually pretty consistent.
0: Okay. So, Brody, can you talk about some common injuries that you see uh, due to our running form? For example, I know a lot of people that have Achilles and calf problems, whereas others might have knee problems. Are those related to your running form?
2: Good question. Um, so, if we're following the trend of, say, cadence, uh, we do know that people have who have a, quite a low cadence have quite large Loads going through their knee and going through their hip. We know that people who overstride quite a lot have large loads that go through their knee. Um, So that can be really nice if someone does have a history of, say, knee issues, and we look at them on the treadmill and their cadence is quite low. We know that science does show that if you increase your cadence by 10%, then your knee loads per step reduce by 20%. And what we know from say, patellofemoral pain or pain around the kneecap is that it's an overload of the joint. And so if we're reducing that load by 20% every step, then that's going to be a huge significance in recovery. So if you were to change that with your, throughout your running, you can run longer distances without accumulating those loads as much. And so it can be a huge difference when you do recover, build up those loads, do your strength work, but also adopt a higher cadence can be really, really nice. If you do have someone who is say a midfoot or a forefoot striker, so instead of contacting their first initial contact with the heel, they do contact with their forefoot closer to their toes. We know that that produces a huge amount of load through your foot, through your calf, through your Achilles, um, but reduces the load on your knees and your hip. And if someone comes in, And they've had a long history of calf strains, and then you look at them on the treadmill and they are a four foot runner, then maybe um, we either need to strengthen them up, we need to be careful with their training loads. But if they're still getting calf strains, maybe that they're open to the discussion of actually transitioning to a heel strike. Because when we change someone's running, here's a, a really key point that people need to know, we don't reduce loads on the body. We only just shift loads on the body to different areas. And it's not as simple as increase your cadence and the loads in the knee reduce. It does reduce in the knee, but then it also increases somewhere else. And so hypothetically, it could increase your risk of injury in another point. But if someone is complaining of a long history of an injury in one specific area, Maybe we can distribute that weight to somewhere else where other joints, other tendons, other ligaments might be able to withstand that load a little bit more. And so long history of calf strains or long history of Achilles tendinopathy, maybe there's some um, some rationale that might indicate, maybe we go to a midfoot land, or maybe we go to a heel strike instead of your forefoot running. Um, yes, it might increase the load through the knee, but maybe their knees are quite strong. and. Um, it reduces the the load on the calves. And so they're just a couple of really clear things that we might look at that we might need to change based on that individual. It's not that every runner should change from one to another. It's just based on their tailored um, history, based on their training history, based on their injury history.
0: That's super interesting. And it's uh, especially a little bit funny because you just busted the myth of um... – heel striking, not being good. And now we're even hearing recommendations for heel strikes.
2: So yeah. Depending on the individual. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So now I want to move on to your arms. Do arms just kind of come with everything or can you tell us what we should be doing with our arms?
2: Yeah. Again, back to that self-optimization. I really think that people well, in most cases, people just find a rhythm within their arms because everyone has different mobility through their shoulder. Everyone has different mobility through parts of their arm and their upper back. And so, they'll move different based on their level of stiffness and their level of flexibility. And they just find their natural flow. Some, It's quite weird how different people run. If you were a coach and if the runner wanted to be elite, if they're like running marathons or really high end there there is evidence to show that changing how they run can increase running performance and can optimize. but for the bulk of recreational runners who aren't representing their nation and aren't like really elite in the the track and field athletic points, there's no real need to do some arm swings or really focus on um, how efficient how <clears throat> the the little nitty gritty angles and the really nitty gritty points with running styles. So, when it comes to arm swing, I just say do what's comfortable. If you want to increase your running performance, that all comes with strength training and it comes with having a really nice, well-structured, progressive training program. It doesn't really matter. It's not high on my priority list looking at arm swing or looking at like fine angles with your your running technique. Uh, I feel like that's just the half percent, the one percenters Whereas strength training and having a really nice running program is like the bulk of what you should do if you want to improve as a runner.
0: Gotcha. And for those that are injured that you recommend they become a heel striker or that they increase their cadence, how does one go about doing that?
2: Yeah, it's different. Like if someone is having that an, an injury, like a reoccurring injury in one specific area of their body time and time again. If they were to come to me, I'd say, okay, let's look at their training schedule. Let's look at their training philosophy. Are they just doing too much too soon? Are they going out too hard? Is there some training errors that they're not looking at? <clears throat> then once we cover that, okay, is their rehab adequate enough? Is that why this injury keeps coming about? Um, if they, If their recovery is adequate and their rehab is spot on, they're doing all the right things and their training philosophy is perfect and they're still getting these issues, that's when we probably need to start doing some tweaking. That's when we probably should start doing some um, changes changes of their running to help distribute the, the load or carry the load away from that injured side and put it somewhere else. And I guess that's just my rationale. I think that's a lot of people just want to change their running technique or change their shoes or change their stretching techniques or um, get a massage or do these things that are really easy to do because they don't want to do the hard stuff, which is the rehab, like making sure they're ticking all the boxes with the rehab, um, making sure that they're training, they're avoiding these training errors and doing something that's really patient, really diligent. So when it comes to increasing cadence, uh, let's just say they've gone out on a run and their Garmin or whatever device has had a look at their cadence and they're down in the 150s, one thing I recommend is just getting a really like just getting a metronome. There can you can get a metronome app on your phone, and what well, there's tons that are out there. Just pick one, and then just increase their cadence by five to ten percent. If they're at one fifty, let's increase it to one fifty five or one sixty, and then just listen to the beat in in your ears and just try and step to the beat of um, that sequence or that rate. See how you feel. See if it's too much, if it's too much, then just dial it down a bit, get used to that cadence. Um, but eventually you want to work it up to that. You're com- you're comfortable doing something at 160, 165, somewhere around there. Um, it might take you a couple of weeks to get there, but I find most people will just, they get into a nice rhythm of just landing every step to a, a beat. Um, it's really easy to follow and you just Naturally, it will just fall into to that once you have that auditory cue. So that's what I would recommend if someone is contacting with the heel or overstriding, and they want to correct that again, just increase their cadence, and that overstride just goes away because it corrects itself.
0: That makes sense. All right, Brody, are there any more myths that you feel like um, the running world, just you know, for running form, should hear about?
2: Um, a lot of people will say that contacting with their heel is inefficient and will link to injury, will cause injury, just know that the evidence doesn't show that. Um, they can point to like a couple of studies. They could, one study in particular followed, say, um, collegiate runners and looked at how they are, looked at all their injury rates throughout a season and then looked at whether they were heel strikers and looked at whether they were forefoot strikers. And they found that the heel strikers got injured twice as much and so, that, you could point to that study and say, hey, heel strike must lead, increase your risk of injury. But when we look at a larger sample of studies and we look at a larger cohort, it just it, the link just isn't there. And so, forefoot runners get injured just as much as heel strikers. Um, if you were to change, evidence does show if you change from a heel strike to a forefoot strike you do become less efficient because you're just not used to running that style. Um, so you become less economical. And it seems the research tends to come up with summary of the benefits that you may get. If you go from f- transitioning from a heel strike to a forefoot strike, the benefits that you may get just doesn't weigh up the, um, all the effort that's put in to try and transition and try and acclimatize to that running style. And so, Heel strike is fine as long as it's close to underneath your body. Um, make sure you're not overstriding. Make sure that that heel, when you strike with the heel, it's close to your center of gravity as possible, and you should be fine. Um, you're, if you're getting injured, other if you are still getting injured, it's be usually because of your training errors um, rather than your actual running style. So perhaps you're doing too much too soon, or your training is too abrupt. So maybe changing shoes, changing terrain, changing speed, something too quickly outside of your adaptation zone. And so try and follow that as a bit of guidance. Don't just have someone say, hey, you need to change your, your foot strike and then you'll be fine.
0: Right, right. Makes sense. So much information, Brody. Thank you so much. And um, for the runners of us that are super analytical and would like to know if you know we fall into one of these categories, is that something that you can help with?
2: Yeah, I definitely operate. I definitely conduct running assessments. I do so online. If someone has access to a treadmill or if they want to run outside, uh, they usually just film themselves in slow-mo as well as just like regular from behind and from the side. And I can easily just assess and provide advice, provide guidance for any runners who might want that.
0: Perfect. And how can they get in touch with you?
2: So, uh, you can reach out. I suppose you, I can just give you my email. So, it's brody at run is my email if you have any questions. Um, my online physio website is breakthroughrunning.physio if they want to learn more about online physio.
0: Perfect, Brody. Thank you so much.
2: Had a lot of fun. Thanks, Letty.
0: All right, guys, so hopefully these tips, if you've listened to them before, this was a refresher. If not, I hope this was helpful.
1: I always seem to think that, you know, the stuff he says is, you know, logical and, and made sense. And so I kind of liked him.
0: Yeah, he has a lot more credibility. If it makes sense to my husband, the musculoskeletal radiologist physician, then, you know, he has all the credibility in the world for us
1: i don't take flattery flatterly well <laughs> flattery i don't take flattery well <laughs>
0: <laughs> i think i made a ryan blush <laughs> <laughs> anyhow so um enjoy this limbo week and then stay tuned for our podcasts um have a safe new year and work on those resolutions and you know create some realistic goals that you can really hold on to for the entire year and with that
1: have a good week of running
0: Thanks for tuning in. For more information, head to www.runningpodcast.us and as always, have a great week of running.